Okay, so according to surveys, 80% of this country would claim to be a disciple, a follower, a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, they come in all stripes and flavors, black and white, uh, Democrat, Republican, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. How, how do we define the Christian? I mean, how do we really know what a disciple is? <clears throat> You've heard me share this story before, but it is my favorite from Charles Spurgeon, who was the, the pastor in London in the 19th century, and um, a great preacher, and really saw a great movement of God under his ministry. Uh, but as he was walking down the street one day, uh, in the evening, a man came stumbling out of a pub, and uh, quite inebriated, and, and when he saw uh, Spurgeon, he said, are you Pastor Spurgeon? He says, I am. He says, who are you? He says, well, I'm one of your disciples. I'm one of your converts. And so Spurgeon, without missing a trick, said, you must be one of mine because you're not one of the Lord's. <laughs> you can see discipleship in the life that is lived. You, you can see it. And, and what, what Jesus is going to show us today is this counterintuitive picture of discipleship. We've already seen it all through the 16th chapter. The counterintuitive nature. Remember, something that's counterintuitive is true. It just doesn't seem true to the natural observation. So here you have in the beginning of chapter 16, the, the shepherds of Israel, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they reject Jesus. And yet Peter, this uneducated, reactionary fisherman, believes and confesses that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. And then the next section, you have Jesus picking up the mantle. He is the Christ. He's from God. The hope of the nations rests upon him. He's going to redeem all things. And yet then he says, I have to die. I have to suffer many things and die. It just twists the mind. And then we come to this passage here and we talk about discipleship. What is life like for those who will follow a conquering king? Well, it's not trouble-free. In fact, we go into the same arena of suffering and death that he goes into. I mean, it's really sobering to hear these words. Jesus is going to do two things in this passage, just two things. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to define it for us. He's going to help us. You know, how do we know what a disciple is? Is 80% of our country really disciples? Well, he's going to help define it for us. And I have a feeling that your definition may adjust a bit. And then he's going to give us reasons why we ought to walk in what he says. He's going to implore us. He's going to motivate us. He's going to, he's going to incentivize us to follow what he's saying, to walk in this way of the cross. So if you turn with me, let's read Matthew chapter 16, 24 to 28. Matthew 16, 24 to 28. Remember now, this follows Jesus proclaiming that he would die for us that he would suffer many things and die. It says this, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So the first thing that we see, so just 
with me, focus on verse 24. That's all I want to look at right now. He's going to define discipleship. And you see right away, he says, if anyone, he turns to his disciples, and he says, if anyone would follow me. Now, the idea of would follow, immediately you see that discipleship is not by obligation, it's not by birth, it's not by heritage, it's by choice. We are choosing to follow. It's an act of of the will. It's volition that we're following Jesus Christ. I remember when I came to faith in Christ, or as I understood it, um, I remember being convicted of God's spirit that, that my life was in a position of disrepair and that God's holiness was beyond tracing out. And, and for the first time, or at least in a long time, I'd come to understand Jesus Christ as the means through which I'm reconciled to God through faith. And it all became clear to me And there was a desire to follow Christ. I didn't fully understand it all, but there was a volition. There was a desire. I want to follow him. Or when Carol and I prepared to go overseas and people kind of warned us about the hazards of it. It didn't seem like a problem for us. We wanted to do it. There was a choice that we were making. So he says, if anyone would come after me. So you're not born into a home as a disciple. Your parents may be Christian. That doesn't make you a disciple by birth. It's an act of, I want to follow him. Now, it should raise your suspicion a little bit in that he's talking to his disciples who were already following him. And so what is he saying to them? If you want to follow me, weren't they already following him? But see, the problem was, remember from last week, they were indignant over Jesus saying that he would have to suffer and die. And so they didn't understand what it meant to be a disciple. What they had in their mind was that there was going to be earthly glory, there was going to be immediate victory. <clears throat> there was going to be worldly honor. Hey, we're hooking our wagon to Jesus. We're hitching our wagon to Jesus. He's the rising star, and our stock's going up with his stock. That's what they thought. I mean, you can see that in Mark chapter 10. When James and John were walking with Jesus, they pulled Jesus to the side, and they say, hey, when you get into your kingdom, can we sit on the right and the left? And he turns and says, you have no idea what you're asking. In other words, that's what they're thinking, though. They're thinking what discipleship means is I'm going up the corporate ladder with Jesus. New organization, new kingdom in town, I'm riding up the rails with them. And so Jesus here has just showed them, no, the path to glory is through suffering and death. Do you want to follow me on that path? So he's asking them, do you want to follow me? Excuse me. And because they don't know, he explains it in 24. Look what he says. And I want to explain each one of these little phrases. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Because I think they're all often misunderstood. So what's it mean to be a disciple? Well, he denies himself. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean you give up chocolate at Lent. That's what I used to think. If you give up something you like during Lent, then God will like you more. So it doesn't mean giving up something. I don't even think it means necessarily giving up luxuries or basic necessities. Some people over the history of the church have practiced this very severe autism or uh, severe asceticism where they give up food or they give up drink or they give up clothing and <clears throat> pray in the cold. They think that by giving up everything, God's somehow honored. I don't think that's what he's speaking about. In fact, I think that's easier, frankly, than what Jesus is saying. To deny yourself is to forego you pursuing your own personal interests. It's to, to deny yourself is to take yourself off the central place of concern and commitment 
and put Christ there. To deny yourself is to not try to build an identity around your success at work or your success in this world. To deny yourself is to not seek power and possessions and satisfaction. It's not to find your comfort in the material things that you have or the pension that you have. I mean, to deny yourself is really an issue of authority. Who am I going to follow? Is it going to be my desires and dreams and ambitions? Or am I going to seek to follow God's desires and dreams and ambitions? Paul says it clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Now think about that. The love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but they live for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, here's a quick test to discern how committed you are to your own personal interests. How well do you hear no? When someone says no to you, you can't do that. What do you do? I mean, does your back firm up? Do your, do your fists begin to clench? You see it in children all the time. They don't hide it as well as we do. But when you tell a child no and they really want it, you know the degree to which they are pursuing their own interests by the anger that they have over being denied what they want or what they think they need. And how about you when you're told no by your spouse or by a boss or someone at church? How angry do you get? How frustrated are you? Now, I think that you know the struggle here is with numero uno. Me, am I getting what I want? And Jesus is saying to be a disciple that we are foregoing our interests and we're seeking the interests of God. We're seeking first his kingdom. Now, if that isn't difficult enough, look at the next phrase, taking up your cross. To take up your cross. Now, again, I I think this has been um, misunderstood. It, It, of course, does not mean that you're taking up a cross in the measure Jesus took up a cross, right? So when Jesus took up his cross, that he took it up in a judicial way, that he bore the sin of men and women and God's wrath came upon him for the sin and his hanging on the tree was to achieve reconciliation between God and man. And only he could do that because only he was God and only he was man and man without sin. So in no way is our cross somewhat analogous to his cross. We don't atone for any sins. We don't atone for our own sins. Nor does it mean, and it's kind of worked its way into the conversation of the English language, that, well, this is my cross to bear. And when we say that, we usually are referring to probably a troubling spouse, or we're referring to perhaps an incorrigible child, or perhaps chronic sickness, or perhaps financial trouble, or a bad boss. No, the trials of this fallen world are not the cross that he's speaking about. To take up your cross. Jesus says you have to take up your cross. It means that I'm willing to suffer both trial and shame over my identifying with Jesus Christ. Remember now to the cross. The cross to this audience would have meant immediate death. The cross as an art form like we wear, it didn't enter until the 4th century once you didn't see any more crosses. It was savagery. It was shameful. Not just the horror, the physical persecution of a cross, but they would take the prisoner and they would march the prisoner through the town, leading them to the place of execution. They didn't do it just as a deterrent to crime. They did it to shame the man. And they did it to shame the family. 
There is much shame associated. That's why when Jesus took, he hangs on the cross taking our shame. He had no shame. He was without sin. But he takes our shame by bearing the cross. So when Jesus says to take up your cross, it means the disciple is willing to face the rejection, the mockery, the jeering of following Christ. That you're going to live in a manner that's going to bring you in conflict with this world which is opposed to Christ. And you're going to find that acceptable. You're going to be willing to do that. That's what he's referring to. Now, of course, and this does lead, and you know the life of the disciples, this became a literal thing, at least for Peter to take up the cross. But these disciples all died for their faith. This is speaking about a death. But even today, folks, we live in a unique time in Libya and Syria and Iraq. I mean, doesn't this verse sound different to a Middle Eastern Christian audience than it does to a bunch of Westerners? I mean, doesn't it sound different to them? They are being crucified. They are walking out this literally. So this spans, this isn't just metaphorical, this is literal for some. It is, it is figurative for others. And, and that's where I want to caution us. Because oftentimes we think, well, I'm not suffering like that. And this is a difficult thing to diagnose here. Are we not suffering because we're not identifying closely enough with Christ? Or are we not suffering because that's not what God has ordained for us? Remember, he says, take up your cross. He doesn't say take up his cross or her cross. God has appointed suffering, according to Philippians chapter 1, differently for different people. And so we don't want to feel guilty if we're not suffering like they may be suffering. I was instructed when I considered Peter. You know, Peter, at the end of the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus told him, listen, when you get old, your arms are going to be stretched out and you're going to be taken to a place you don't want to go. And John's clearly, he writes and he says, this was to describe how Peter will glorify God by his death. So he's speaking. He said, Peter, you're going to die. And tradition holds that he was died. He did die with his hands stretched out. He was crucified, tradition holds, upside down, because he didn't want to be parallel to the crucifixion of the Lord. But what Peter did when he heard that, he said, what about John? You know, we're so concerned about everybody else. What about John? What's going to happen with John? And here's what he said. Jesus said to him, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, God has a path laid out for us, and and it's going to be different. So don't, don't feel guilty. We want to pray for our brothers and sisters who are suffering. We want to pray for them as if we were going through it with them. But their walk that God has for them won't be our walk. But we are called to take up our cross. We are called to identify with Christ. We are called to be obedient, even though that may bring us into harm's way. In this culture that seems to be growing somewhat antagonistic to the expressions of faith that we walk. So so we're to deny ourselves. The disciple takes up his cross, but the disciple also follows him. Notice he puts this in at the end, and they follow. Now, this is important because I think we have fumbled the gospel in many ways, we have often boiled Christianity down to a decision for Jesus. I made a decision, I'm a disciple. But it doesn't seem to hold up when you come to a text like this. Because he says you have to keep following him. 
This is a continuous thing. In fact, the verbal tense form of denying and taking up your cross and following me, they're all present tense. They're all continuous. They're all to be going on and on. It's not an event that we come to Jesus. We may believe in Jesus on some morning or some evening, but then we begin to walk, and that walk becomes part of our life. In other words, there's no two-stage of Christianity where, yeah, I'm a Christian, and you look at someone more spiritual and more dedicated to the, to the faith, well, they're, they're the disciple, they're a, they're a leader. They're, there is no two stages. There isn't a radical Christianity. It's all really quite ordinary, which really kind of makes it all radical. It's all ordinary. This is for all of us here, if you claim the name of Christ. That, that, that we want to deny ourselves, we want to take up our cross, and we want to follow, follow and follow. It's a difficult road, it's a sobering task. This is what John Bunyan, he's a great British preacher back in the 17th century. He said this, and he paraphrases this section that I'm reading. He was a tinker. He, he worked with pots and pans. He was not a licensed preacher. He had to preach in the woods because he wasn't part of the Church of England at the time when you had to be a priest to preach the gospel. So he'd go out and preach in the fields. And he said this. So he spoke from, he spoke from experience, and he spent eight years in jail because he wouldn't say he would forego preaching the gospel. So he speaks as one who walked this text out. He says, following of me is not like following of some other masters. The wind sits always on my face and the foaming rage of the sea of this world and the proud and lofty waves thereof do continually beat upon the sides of the ship that myself or my cause or my followers are in. He, therefore, who will not run hazards, he who is afraid to venture a drowning, let him not set foot into this vessel. In other words, it's a warning. To be a disciple, it's to enter a road of suffering. This is a sobering, I think it's a very sobering word. So what do we do with this? I want you to think of a couple A's. I want to give you, so I just want to apply this thought to you. I want you to think of three A's, three A's. The first one is assess yourself. Where are you in this? <clears throat> I mean, do you see yourself denying yourself for the purposes of God? Do you, not, do you deny yourself anything? Do you face conflict with others because of your identifying with Jesus? I mean, do you practice? Do you follow him? In other words, when you read texts of Scripture that call you to forgive, do you then go forgive those with whom you have conflict? Or, 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 to, or to bear the burdens of another, then do you go and actually do what he said? That's what it means to follow. You know, Mark Twain said something very interesting. I'm going to paraphrase it because I couldn't find the exact wording, but it was something like this. The problem that we have with Christianity is not understanding what Jesus says. It's doing what we understand. That's, that's the problem with following Jesus, just doing it. So assess yourself. So in terms of self-denial, let me try to be really practical with you. Sometimes when you, <clears throat> when you try to assess your life, it's hard because it's so big. So I, I break my life into these concentric circles, and I look at, at my relationships in each circle to see if I'm really walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. So I look at my marriage with Carol, and I'll ask, am I denying myself? In other words, if I have a hard day at work, and I'm tired, and I sit down, and I think I've got a right just to get a break and, and take a rest for a little bit. But, but I see that she's in a situation where she needs aid. Am I going to sacrifice my right, or that I perceive to be my right, to get up and serve her, or to get up and help her? 
Am I going to put myself out for her benefit, for the glory of God? Will I do that? Or will I sit and justify myself that, no, I've worked hard, it's been tired, I can't believe this happened, I just need a break, and then I'll be able to help her more effectively later? Really? I mean, do I deny myself in the context of marriage? Or do I deny myself in the context of church? You know, so I'm here, and, you know, I haven't seen my friend across the way there, and haven't talked to him in a few weeks, and I really want to get over to them, and, and, uh, and, and speak with them, but then you notice out of the corner of your eye, there's someone new, and, and they don't have anybody around them, and you know what it would be like to be new, and, and, and so am I going to deny myself the pleasure of going to see a friend and put myself out to go introduce myself, maybe invite them for lunch, and get them to know what God may be or may not be doing in their life? Or, or in the context of, of your community, that, that you know, you're, you're working in the yard, your neighbor's out there, and, and you know you've been kind of in wanting to share a little bit of God with him or try to ask him how he's doing, but you've got things to do and you've got to get this stuff done. And you don't, you know, denying yourself would look like, no, I'm going to put the rake down. I'm going to go engage my neighbor for the purposes of God. I'm going to sacrifice that sense of right that I have. It's really putting aside rights. That's what it is. You can see it in your friendships. So you have a friend. You're tired, though, and you need some me time, and you want to relax because it's been so tough on you. But you have a friend who's hurting, and are you going to go over there and encourage them? Are you going to set aside that time for yourself to serve the purposes of God in the life of another person? That's really what we're talking about here. That's what discipleship in, in some practical way. So as you assess yourself, what do you find? Do these aspects of discipleship, are they reflected in your life? Do you see them? Because when you assess yourself and you find yourself wanting, then admit it to God. Acknowledge it. Confess your sin. This is the great thing of Christianity. There's no expectation of perfection. There is a constant assessing of life, repenting, and walking by faith. Ask God's Spirit for grace. Ask Him to help you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So the first A is assess yourself. The second A is admit it. Just confess it. And then the third A would be adore Christ who has walked in perfect discipleship so that when you fail, you don't castigate yourself over and over and over again. But you recognize, I'm thankful for the one who has walked in a perfect... He did deny himself fully. He did take up his cross literally. And he followed God's plan perfectly. So we rest in that. That gives us hope. Now, I want to just stop for a minute and just confess as a, as a pastor, this is a hard passage to preach, and here's why. Because what I tend to do in passages that are so sobering, it tends to split you in half. Some of you are going to take the route of cheap grace. You're going to like, hey, I believe, and this is, you can't do this stuff. And I believe, I prayed, and you kind of give yourself a pass because it's so difficult. And you, you think, well, I'll get to it later. Or, you know what, I'm trying and that's all I can do. And I can't do this. And you kind of take a pass on doing some real inspection of your own soul. Others of you will go the other way. And you'll feel like you've got to hack off an arm. Or you've got you've to go on a missionary trip. Or you've got to do something just, just colossal for Jesus to then be a disciple. And I don't, I don't want to fall into either of those errors. I, I want to try to chart a course where perhaps you draw in a Christian brother or sister and ask, 
what do you see in aspects? What, what aspects of discipleship do you see in my life? What do you see? Do you see me sacrificing? You know, that you assess yourself, you take your soul to task. So they don't, we don't run this risk of you walking out of here. This is the problem with these passages here is, is a lot of times they're so difficult. I can get you to understand it conceptually, but, but putting it on the ground is very hard. So, and that's why we've prayed. And I know my explanation won't do it. We prayed before the service, unless the Spirit of God makes this clear to you. You're going to walk out of here with a high probability of running in one of those two errors. And we have prayed that that would not happen, so I trust it to be so. Okay, so that's the call for discipleship. That's how he defines it. What is a disciple? Is it praying to ask Jesus in your heart when you were 12 years old? It may be the beginning of it, but if it wasn't followed with a life of faith, then I would say you're no disciple at all. You're no disciple. A disciple is known by denying himself, not perfectly, but practically and regularly, taking up your cross, you're willing to identify with Christ. You may be silent last week when the pressure was on, but then you repent of that, and you go back and you try again. And, and also following him, just being obedient to the commands as you read them, as you understand them, and repenting when you fail. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now, this is a tall order. So look at how Jesus encourages us. Look with me at 25 to 28. Now, I want you to notice in your scriptures, he gives us three reasons here, I think. And if you look at 25 and 26 and 27, you're going to see they begin with the same word in each verse. Four, four, four. He's giving us reasons. He's giving us motivations. He knows the way of the discipleship is going to be difficult and strewn with problems. So he gives us motivations, encouragements. And look at how he does it with the first one. He says this in 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now this is kind of a divine paradox, if you will. So the first reason that I don't want you to forget is don't forget the divine paradox. First reason, divine paradox. In other words, it is in trying to save your life that you will lose it. It's in actually giving up your life and losing it that you're actually going to keep it. Doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive. So when he says, whoever saves his life will lose it, he's saying, if you are trying to save this life on this earth, you're putting in all your talents, all your energies, all your efforts to pursue your goals and your dreams and your ambitions without, with little consideration to the glory of God and the life to come, you will lose it. If you're striving to find financial security and, and business success and all these things just dominate your efforts and time and treasures. He says, you're going to lose it. You're going to forfeit it. It's a judicial term. It's taken away from you. And it can happen now. You know, the word for life in 25 and the word for soul in 26 is the same. So he's saying that you're going to lose that part of yourself that survives death. It's going to be taken from you. One author said that the man or the woman who thinks in saving this life, he will keep it, is a fool without peer. It's foolish. No, the, the servant, the disciple that's wise says, no, I want to give my life. I want to lose my life that I may gain it. And to lose your life means you're not trying to run your life according to the cultural paradigm of what makes a happy life. You're willing to let go of status and reputation and, and wealth. You're willing to let go of those things for the purposes of the kingdom. He goes, they will gain that life. I love that a person in the church uh, gave me a poem for my birthday. And I'm going to pull a couple lines out of it. 
Uh, and this was the poem, or the prayer, I should say. May your own life grow more lost. May his life grow more found in you. That's what we're talking about here. That over time, the disciple is willing to lose more and more of his life. Here's how C.S. Lewis expresses it at the end of Mere Christianity. He says, give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have, not given away, will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. So this idea of how are you losing your life? How are you giving it away unto God? When we try to protect and manage risk and try to secure everything, many of us are absolute dominated by the need to control our lives. What comes in, what comes out? We're going to manage it all. Folks, you can't manage anything. It's all temporal. So the divine paradox, that's what allows us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. We want to lose it to gain it. The second principle he gives us, the second promise is don't forget the value of a soul. Look at 26 with me. These are two rhetorical questions that I think have relentless logic. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for a soul? I think they're asking the same question from a different angle. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world? The implication is you can't do both. You can't do both. So you can't say, I'm gaining the world, but I'm also going to save my soul. I mean, think about it for a minute. To gain the whole world. So let's make it more practical. You put your name in that, like I did. So I asked myself this week, what will it profit Tom if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So to gain the whole world, let's try to financially determine the value of the whole world. Okay, let's just take America and Europe. Let's just start there. If I have all precious materials, all real estate, all people, all pleasures, all comforts, I have everything that these two areas have. I have it all. He says that will not weight the scale compared to the value of an eternal soul. Is that amazing? Folks, we have to pray to understand that. Everything that we see and live flies in the face of that. Do you realize the importance of a soul? Do you realize the value of your soul to be of far greater value than the beautiful clothes you wear, the lovely cars you drive, the comfortable homes in which we live? The value of your soul is far greater, far greater. J.C. Raw was another British pastor, same time actually a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, He said this to the question. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? He says, there can only be one answer to this question. There is nothing on earth or under the earth that can make amends to us for the loss of our souls. There's nothing that money can buy or man can give or be named in comparison with our souls. The world and all that it contains is temporal. It's all fading, perishing, passing away. The soul is eternal. Let it sink deeply into our hearts. And then he asks his congregation, he says, Are you wavering in your faith? Do you fear the cross? 
Does the way seem too narrow? Does discipleship seem too hard for you? Let our master's words ring in your ears. What will it profit a man? And doubt no more. Answer the question. What will it profit you? What are you pursuing right now? What, what, what is of such value? Is it, the, is it the success of your children? Is it the, the career that you're laboring after? Is it the security that you're trying to build? Is it the, is it the ambitions that you have to, to have a position or to have a certain popularity? What is so valuable to you? It, or is it the building of a more greater physique? If I put as much time into my soul as some put into their bodies, I'd be farther along. I'm sure of that. What do you value more than your soul? It's a question you have to ask yourself. What do you value more? The psalmist in 73, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Again, if you're convicted over this, what do we do? We assess ourselves. We admit that we're sinners. And then we adore Christ who has saved us, even from these sins. And then the last encouragement he gives us. So don't forget the divine paradox. Don't forget the value of the soul. And then last, and I think really significantly, don't forget the promise of glory. Look in 27. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Okay, what's the third encouragement he's giving us? Okay, simply saying this. Jesus knows that our path, if we really walk as disciples, it's going to be a road strewn with trouble and trial and difficulty. And so he's encouraging us toward this day that is coming. And he's encouraging us the day's coming where Jesus is going to come back. Now, listen, he says, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, if you don't know, I think some of you do, this comes from Daniel chapter 7. And if you were to read Daniel 7 later in the day, you would find this out. It says that one, like the Son of Man, appears before the Ancient of Days. That's God. And God gives to the Son of Man a kingdom full of glory and power and majesty to crush all kingdoms and establish a kingdom forever. So that's a scene in heaven that Daniel has. So he sees the Father giving to the Son of Man a kingdom of glory. Okay, so Jesus now refers to that scene as applying to himself. He says, I'm that Son of Man. I'm the one that's bringing the kingdom, full of glory and power. That's who I am. He says, and I'm going to come again. Jesus already told us he's going to die, but he's going to be raised from the dead, which he said last week, and then he's going to bring this kingdom. He's going to come again. But notice how he comes. He's not coming as a child like he did the first time. He's coming with his angels. Do you notice the, the pronoun there? They're his angels. They're not angels. They're his. Why? Because he owns everything. He's the king. All the angels do is bidding. They all follow his commands. They all submit to him. Every word. They're his angels. And he comes in his father's glory. Now, you know in Scripture... There is no, God doesn't share his glory. And so it shows the unique relationship that Jesus, the God-man, has with the Father. And he's going to come in the glory of the Father as judge to render to every man and every woman what they, what they have done in their, in their lives. He's going to render to them. Now this is an encouragement to you. Why? Because he's going to reward you. He's going to satisfy you for the suffering and the trials that you have endured. He's going to give you of himself that will make all those sufferings as if nothing. 
That's what Paul was saying. He was driving at this in 2 Corinthians. He says, these momentary afflictions are achieving for us a weight of glory beyond all comparison. So walking after Jesus, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, being like Christ in this world, you will be far. You will be well compensated. You will be richly rewarded. You will be eternally grateful. Of course, the inverse is true as well. If you're not a disciple, you're not walking. And the judgment is the same, but on the other side. Now, I know some of you may be struggling, and you're saying, well, hold it now. Does this mean I'm saved by my works? Is this, con- is this running contrary to justification by faith or the gospel of grace? No, not at all. Remember, the works, the fruit of your life, is only evidencing what's inside. So if you have a tree that's great, producing great fruit, you can trust that that tree has roots deep in faith. So that's why in James chapter 2, he says, I'll show you my faith by my works. The works are a fruit of the faith. That's why John Calvin, the reformer of the 16th century, says, faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. It's attended with works. So that's what Jesus is doing. He's looking at the works as the fruit of the faith. Now, these disciples had to wonder, well, hold it now. You just said you're going to die, and now you're saying you're coming back again. And I can just imagine they were getting a little nervous about, can we trust him coming back again? And so I think that's what 28's in there for. A lot of people, I know you're wondering, how's he going to explain 28 to us? This is kind of a theological black hole. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming. Well, there's about seven different views on this. But, but I, think, I think really it's simpler than that. He's speaking to people. He says, there are some standing here. So it must apply directly to those standing here in some measure. And I would propose to you, I'd submit to you, that what he's speaking about is the transfiguration initially. So in other words, in the very next passage, Jesus is going to be up on a mountain with James, John, and Peter, and he's going to be glorified by the Father, and the Father's going to confirm his love for the Son, and he's going to be shining in, in bright, radiant light, and there's going to be Moses and Elijah, so the, the speaker of the law and the speaker of the prophets, and they're all speaking to Jesus. And Jesus is being glorified here as he's the king of the kingdom and he's come to do the work of God. So I think that's a partial fulfillment of it. But I think it's ultimately fulfilled in the resurrection. In other words, in the resurrection, Jesus was brought from the dead. He reveals himself. He's given power and authority, a reminder of Daniel 7. And then you see the Spirit of God come at Pentecost and what happens? The kingdom comes and it begins to go out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. I think that's what he's speaking about. But what I love about the gentleness of Jesus here is he gives them a foretaste of what's coming. If you've seen this, you know it's coming. If you've seen a glimpse of it, you know the reality's coming. And this is an encouragement to us. So for us to walk as disciples, we want to remember the divine paradox. We want to remember this idea that the value of the soul, but we want to remember he's coming because if you consider his return, and this is difficult. I told Carol, Last night as we're praying, I said, this is so rich and helpful, but it's so hard to get in our minds that you have to think his return is helpful today. How so? It makes you alert. If you are mindful of his return, it makes you alert. Like Jesus said, if you knew the, the burglar was coming, you'd be prepared. You'd be ready. If you know he's coming, you live differently. 
Now, I don't know if it'll be tomorrow, if it'll be in 100 years. doesn't matter to me. He's already come once. He's coming again. So it makes me spiritually alert. But secondly, it also makes me missionally urgent. It makes me more cognizant that I'm on mission in my life, that, that I want to be about. I, I don't want to take things for granted. I don't want to be, I don't want to be nervous about it, but I want to be urgent in my willingness to declare the gospel to people. I want to be urgent about turning conversations to Christ and what is he doing in your life and what does he need to do in your life. I want to be urgent on these things. But then thinking about this return of Christ also gives me power to forgive. You know, many of us won't forgive because we feel like it's a major injustice. And yet the return of Christ promises a perfect justice will be achieved. Every, every rock will be turned over. There will be a justice. And so if I know he's coming to bring a justice, I can forgive. I can forgive those even when they don't fully understand it. I can walk in forgiveness to them. And then last, thinking about Christ's coming helps me suffer well. It helps me handle bad news. Someone's sick. Someone's died. A job loss. Why? It's good news that he's coming back. When you are living in bad news... Good news is helpful. Cornelius Plantiga, modern-day theologian, Grand Rapids, he writes, thinking on the day of Jesus' return is good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. It's good to think one day he'll come with his angels in the glory of the Father and he will make all things new. He will perfect all things, including me. So the idiosyncrasies, the sin struggles, all that attends Tom Mercer's life will one day be made perfect. That's a day to think about. I, I mean, I'm thinking about vacation in summer, and this is a whole lot better. If I can think about vacation, I want to give thought to that day when you see him and you'll be made like him. So to be a disciple, he's explained in, in verse 24, this is what it is. People, assess yourself. Are you walking in discipleship? If you're not, repent. And walk by faith, trusting the one who has led you in discipleship has done it perfectly. And then he gives three reasons, 24, 25, 26. Excuse me, 25, 26, and 27. Three reasons. Think about it. We live in a paradoxical world where weak is actually strong, where poor is actually rich, where service is actually greatness. That's God's economy. It's paradoxical. But we also know the value of the soul. So if you put all the wealth of the world on a scale and you drop the value of your soul, it'll go up like that. It's heavier. It's more important. And then we have this promise of his return. So this is a role for the church to play as well. This is a lot that I've thrown at you. So before the weekends, try to have a conversation, even after the service today, of involving another believer in your life and speaking to you about this. If you're not a Christian here, <clears throat> This is obviously a word to the disciples. It doesn't show us how to become disciples. It really explains discipleship to us. But if you have questions, I'd love for you to come up front and speak with us about it. Let's have just a moment now, a couple minutes of, of silent reflection. Again, this is a time for you to be silent. You're with God, and perhaps it leads to conviction of sin. Perhaps it leads to just pleading for grace. Or perhaps you really are walking in this way. Then let it be a time of great thanksgiving. And then Ray's going to close us in just a minute.